0: Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to John and Phil of IGNW, and we discuss ways to put servant leadership into practice, the exciting future of truly distributed computing models, and why the cloud is a pattern, not a place. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Dude, I am excited. Like what I saw the name, and I love the um, the Mario characters you've got going on behind you. You got posters, like paintings. Did you do those paintings?
1: No, my son actually did those. Your for Your son did. The, they're yeah. they're
0: they're unbelievable. They're like perfect. They're like the actual designer would. That's how it should look.
1: Yeah, I think he got the idea from uh, when he saw pictures on something, and he said, oh, "I'm going to make these for you." For he made them for me for my birthday. So it's pretty cool.
0: My. uh my wife does some paintings she's got she did a galaxy painting for for my room and it's like it's pretty cool and then uh, i have i had a rule like all the art that's up has to be art that we make i like that
2: nice i like that too we do a lot of like furniture building and we've got some art that my wife's created as well
0: have you guys ever done the the re like you buy something off craigslist and like redo it up Oh yeah, for sure. Our,
2: our console that our TV sits on is one of those pieces that's a uh, we completely remade. You know, it was kind of like just a bookshelf, and we ended up fabricating doors for it and putting doors and stuff on it and some wine racks in it. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I've done both.
0: Yeah. I told my I told my wife I was like I think you spent more time taking the Instagram photos than you did doing the restoration. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But this is a tech podcast. We're supposed to be talking about being modern CTOs and stuff. Yep. <laughs> that's what
1: we're supposed to be talking about.
0: Yeah. You guys, you guys have two CTOs at the company. I want to, I want to talk about that. How did that happen?
2: Yes, we actually have four now. Four. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. So because we're a consulting company, you know, and I'll, I'll let John give us perspective, but you know, about a year ago, we came up with the idea to create an office of CTO, right? And so I took over the role of CTO for the entire company, but that really wasn't cutting it. And what we're realizing in our business at scale is that we need domain expertise within each line of business that we run within the overall business, and so. You know, you can think of them also as consulting CTOs. You know, John's the best of the best when it comes to talking cloud and cloud native, right? But he also has a depth of knowledge that goes all the way to the data center. And then he has a peer that's on the data center side of our business. So we've got, you know, cloud, then we've got what we call software-defined infrastructure. And then we have modern software. And then their other peer is Brian, who runs our modern software business uh, from a technology perspective. And so they kind of run an overlay, right? And they partner with the business owner uh, in each line of business. So John owns the technology story for cloud, right? And he owns quality and output of any projects we run with customers for cloud. So more than likely he's teaching me or teaching our customer how to build the right you know, design for their environment. So, but I'll hand it over to John, let you give some color to that too in perspective, you know, from you, I know we moved you over to that role probably what eight months ago now has yeah, <laughs> changed slightly. Yep.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. So um, it really is about, driving business focus and because our customers uh, and and our partners expect us to be experts in you know every functional area that we consult in um, what we found as a business is that it's just it's just too broad to maintain that deep technical expertise um, at a you know from a single position and so by adding in um, I guess you know some people call them field CTOs. We call them CTOs of a different functional area. There's there's several different um, different ways to refer to that in the industry. But what we found is that it really allows myself, Roger, and Brian to focus on the technical expertise, and then uh, allows Phil to focus from a strategy perspective on the business as a whole. And so that that division of labor is really important to keep our engineering teams and our technical teams sharp while still making sure that we're not losing sight of the strategy that's necessary to run a consulting company.
0: So that's your primary line of business consulting.
2: Yeah. So heavily it's, um, it's professional services or what people will call a systems integrator uh, that sit in between, you know, their technology partners that they're consuming technology from and their engineering field teams that don't always understand how to apply modern patterns, right? We get set in the way that we do things, and years go by, and we accumulate a bunch of technical debt. And so, most of what we do in our professional services business is we come in and we help consult on that. You know, how do you go from what you're doing today to a modern delivery uh, approach to either software development, DevOps, SRE, you know, or uh, just operations uh, of running a cloud? You know, what's important from a governance perspective, security? How should you architect these systems?
0: Yeah. And you know what? You're the person who put together the notes for this uh, conversation, but so detailed, amazing. And I went through and I was like picking out the things I liked uh, and like what caught my attention. And something really stood out to me that I want to know about. Uh, cloud is not, a, or cloud is a pattern, not a place. I, I That feels good. It feels right. Yeah. But I want to know, like, I want more words behind that.
2: Yeah, so I, I I do some speaking, and I've kind of realized we're in a digital revolution at this point, right? And people are grasping, and we always do—we grasp the tools or the technology that we think is going to solve our problem. But generally, it all boils down to patterns and practices, you know, of how you consume and how you build and how you design. And so that's one of the things that I thought about hard. And and you can create private cloud environments that are as effective and operational as your public cloud environments. People just struggle to do that, right? They tried OpenStack. Uh, that was the and all be all for this type of solution, you know, about what, 10 years ago when it came out, but it, you needed to be NASA or based to implement it. And so what John and I realized over, you know, th- three years of building this business is, it's really a mindset and a patterns and practices mode. And so we're able to, you know, Roger's able to leverage ideas and concepts coming out of cloud and apply it to our software-defined infrastructure business, which essentially you could have called it private cloud business, right? Because essentially that's what we're doing there is we're taking the concepts that are being pioneered in the cloud that are easy to do and we're making them available to implement within the data center, which is is it's a bit more challenging, but it's really about those patterns and practices and how do you make that work in concert without cutting off so much of the pattern of the practice. Due to a technology constraint, that you cripple it and it's it's unusable. But John, what is your perspective on that as well? Because I always say you, cloud-native anywhere. Right.
0: Yeah. So
1: um, it, and cloud-native anywhere is probably the best way to describe it is we're really focused on helping customers apply uh, the tools that they've come to expect from the public cloud to the data center and to what would typically be called traditional infrastructure. So instead of thinking of a stack of servers sitting in a room in your building as on-premise, what we try to do is shift the conversation and say that's really just you know, a, a, um, a hybrid cloud endpoint or an on-premises cloud endpoint. And you should think about your applications and your workloads the same way, regardless of where they're being deployed to really become a cloud native enterprise um, and that's where you know IGNW is is really focused on helping customers understand what those patterns and practices look like for cloud native and how we can transform traditional or uh, heritage applications to to be more modern and and uh, to be, take advantage of those those new new patterns.
0: So I was talking with a Clay over at Oracle, and. He was responsible for this business unit that helped uh, older or companies that still had like physical racks and mainframes uh, move to the cloud because often you know you get with a bunch of SaaS companies and they're they're built in the cloud by default. but then I heard some crazy statistics that like seventy five percent plus still aren't in the cloud. They're still on these. they're still making the transition and that they were focusing on building a suite of tools and oracle was building around that segment of the market and then i saw in the notes about anthos am i saying that right is that how you pronounce it yep. yeah and so then i read up on on what that was and i said oh man this looks like exactly the conversation i was having with oracle about building tools that will allow to make that transition smoother am i grasping this concept correctly
2: yeah, I mean, there's 80% of companies are going to be in a, in a hybrid cloud state effectively. If you think about taking a company like Oracle and saying, all right, the board has said we're cloud first. What does that mean? Well, it means we need to move everything into the cloud. We need to build everything for the cloud, but we have 15 global data centers. How do we do that? Right? It doesn't happen with the flip of a switch, right? So you're going to be in this hybrid cloud state for you know, a period of time. We've, we come into customers that are three years into that journey, and only 2% of their workloads are up in the cloud. Right. And they thought they would be cloud first and move to the cloud by the end of that third year.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt you because yep. I, I like to talk big, but I also like to talk small and I keep hearing this and I want you as like, cause you guys are experts. You're in it all day. Tell yep. me like why, like why three years and 2%. Like what is, yep. tell me the nerd. Like why is it? Stu- I'm a, I've got 17 years of engineering experience. Tell me yep. why it's not going.
2: So I'll, I'll give my thoughts and then pass to John because I know he can add a lot of detail around these problems. He's worked on both sides of the equation and so have I. Um, but a lot of it you know, f- comes down to business first, right? So some businesses are more traditional and it goes all the way to the board level that they're uncomfortable putting their data in the cloud. And so they need more of a hybrid solution. They're okay saying, let's throw a server out there, but my data can't leave my network. It needs to be protected in private. And they still have this belief that they can do that better than public cloud, right? They can protect it better. Or they can meet compliance better. Um, So that's a big aspect of it. It's a cultural thing within the organizations themselves. But then you get into technology challenge problems, right? Most customers we go into still run IP addressing off spreadsheets, right? That's not a viable solution in the cloud. So you've got to retrain those networking teams to think about building networks in a different way, right? Because the way they build them today are very bespoke. Um, And then from that point, now it's talk server automation as we go up the stack, right? So the way we build our servers is very much a manual process today on-prem, The way it needs to be done in the cloud is much more of an automated process. At least that's what the benefits, that's how the benefits come out of using cloud. If you build it by hand in cloud, what you've done is you've lifted and shifted your problem into the cloud and now you're still operating the same way you do on-prem. That's not generally the desired business outcome that you're looking for in operating in cloud. So you've got to learn all these new cloud constructs to be able to correctly model your server workloads, right? And then all the way to the applications here, right? So a lot of application owners, especially if it's third-party software, they're configuring it by hand. And the software vendors are old. So uh, when our teams come in to actually configure that in an automated way, a lot of times it's it's us writing software to automate their configuration. It's us having to reverse engineer the database that stores all the configuration for this thing so that the users don't have to go through a manual screen to click all the options versus modern products that allow us to hit APIs directly, right? They're automation friendly. So those are some of the high-level challenges. And then, uh, you know, from building servers, it can be as simple as, you know, config management a few years ago was a great thing. And we're building these excuse me pets there's a great thesis in the market pets versus cattle well what we've landed on is that we want our infrastructure to be cattle we want to be able to replace it at any given point in time not treat it like this pet server that's running out there in the world that we want to keep in a consistent state instead we want it to be able to be resumed anywhere in the world at a consistent state right and so that's much more of an immutable pattern so tools like hashicorp terraform and packer have spun up to solve that problem, but customers don't necessarily always understand the difference between running Puppet and running Terraform and Packer, right, to build their workloads. They don't understand that immutable uh, design pattern change. But That's that's a lot of information. I'm going to hand it to John because I know he can go a little bit deeper on each one of those problems and and talk about specifics or maybe even examples where we've gotten, you know, stuck with a customer on a a specific pattern.
1: Sure. Yeah, thanks, Phil. So... Um, as as Phil said, you know, I think that there are several contributing factors to why um, some larger enterprise and maybe more traditional enterprises haven't begun or haven't made significant progress on the, the cloud, I'll call it a cloud journey uh, or digital transformation, right? Um, some of that is that, you know, some of these systems have been around for 30 years and modernization of those systems just takes significant investment and companies are having to do the cost benefit and figure out where to where to make investments right it's you can't modernize all at once i've got limited resources i've got a limited team that understands cloud and cloud native patterns at my company how do i best make use of that and that's where we start to see those emerging you know net new things that are being built in the cloud or those two percent that have been migrated that are high value uh, maybe low hanging fruit and what we're really starting to see is companies looking for help around building um, frameworks for cloud migration. So the, one of the patterns that we help a lot of companies with is building a cloud center of excellence, helping them determine migration candidates, right? So there's you know there's more than one way to move to the cloud. We can just move it, right? We can do a lift and shift uh, where we just pick it up and drop it in the cloud, little benefit there. We can do a move and improve where we get some, some marginal benefits. Uh, we take advantage of cloud native services when they're available, but we still kind of reduce our risk. we can go all the way up to you know replatforming or or completely refactoring an application and one of the one one of the options that often gets um overlooked is just completely replacing something so even helping customers determine where services on-prem can just be outsourced to like a SaaS company and so building that framework is really what i think companies are struggling with and there are certainly companies in the market that have got it uh, that have got it. They've got it down. They've done this. They're well on their journey, but a lot of companies don't even know where to start. And so uh, we can come in and help with that. And we've done that for several large companies. There's a large manufacturing company out of the Northwest that we've helped uh, do that exact thing. Uh, we can also help with understanding where your staff needs maybe upskilling or uh, some additional tooling. You know, we can build the automation for your team. We can help uh, with training and and all of those things. I think are becoming you know executives are starting to see those as barriers and uh, looking for ways to to mitigate them and to overcome them. And then, of course, the last one is just um, risk. I think there's still a lot of perceived risk in many organizations in moving to the cloud. And as Phil said. You know they they've been move, They've been running it online for a while, or the, sorry, on premises for a while. Um, they believe that uh, for whatever reason that their on premises deployment is more stable, more secure, um, more uh, more more affordable, more cost effective. And so it's really sometimes it's just about education and making sure that we communicate the value, the true value of a cloud provider. Um, and then there's always there's always going to be a, a use case where, whether it's edge computing or uh, you know extremely sensitive data or um, you know other use cases that com- where companies are going to need some amount of infrastructure on premises, right? We have lots of customers that that are that build in the cloud, but for whatever reason, whether it's connectivity at the edge, whether it's um, the, they want the resiliency should they lose connectivity, they need some level of computing on premises and they need to be able to run the workload, even if the, they lose connectivity to the cloud. And so that's also another use case now with anthos specifically um, as a migration tool and as a as a hybrid cloud platform what we're seeing is it provides the um, not only the ability to migrate legacy or heritage workloads, you know, I've got a bunch of VMs running in my data center and I wanna move those to the cloud. But it also provides a way to to take uh, containerized workloads to the edge in a, uh, in a stable and secure way, the same way we would deploy them in the cloud. And that is really where Anthos is proving to be transformative for a lot of businesses is uh, giving that same cloud experience, that cloud-like experience um, that we have, in uh, the public providers such as Google and and sharing that or bringing that down to the edge. Yeah so
2: we talked a bit oh sorry Joel I was gonna no, add a little ahead. more color go on that I know you're a software guy like me right so my background started in software engineering about 13 years old same I think as I read in your bio you know started coding at a pretty young age and what you so we've both grown up through all of these transitions uh, or a lot of them right as, as we've been software engineers And so if you think about the old DLL hell problems, right, that was solved through, you know, these namespaces and packaging and being able to install multiple copies of the same application sources into into a machine, right? And then that has evolved now into, you know, containers where if you think about boiling that down for the audience, it's really a packaging unit for software that combines the operating system and all runtime aspects of the software requirements together. So rather than the way we build today where we might build a server or a VM independent of applying the software to it, we're doing all that as one operation. And so that's what's really made it take off and and hit the industry as a whole as the holy grail for this multi-cloud or hybrid environment. If you can get your applications containers, well, it solves a hundred problems for you, right? That uh, you would have to build as a software engineering team in building a distributed system to manage that infrastructure. And we saw this happen in the past through um, PaaS-based platforms, right? Like Pivotal's Cloud Foundry great solution, but when you're building such an opinionated platform, you're always gonna have areas where your your consumer, your software engineering teams get locked into the solution in some way, uh, in terms of inability to solve their problem or so dependent on the solution they couldn't migrate it anywhere else, right? And what that Kubernetes platform gives you is the ability to get portability. You know, the container provides the true portability, the Kubernetes layer provides the orchestration portability across environments between private cloud, public cloud, multi-cloud environments what anthos does you know we started this business 3 years ago we were deploying kubernetes from vanilla upstream these were huge consulting projects right lots of uh, engineering power behind just standing up the platform itself you know um, i think the team we first had was about 6 people just building the platform writing the terraform deploying kubernetes right and then we had software engineering teams with about 40 engineers that were converting the applications to run on top of it right it, and so very large what anthos has done is boiled all that down and said well as we've seen this increase now we have a distribution of kubernetes right that's supported that has a company backing it that you can call that's going to provide expertise and support when you go wrong and that's both available as a managed service in the cloud but now it's available in your data center or as john mentioned on the edge which i'm a huge believer that data center's are not going away it's being disintermediated by cloud and by edge and so that means as your central data centers may move to the cloud but you, if you're a retailer like a Chipotle, you still have thousands of branch locations that need many data centers. And so rather than applying traditional branch patterns to them, I think you can apply this more modern approach where you know, we deploy Anthos to the edge and it's running a mini- miniature Kubernetes data center out there. And that could be running on, a, on an Intel Nook at a, an individual workstation, or it could be running in a cabinet right with a Cisco type hyperflex box that's pared down for edge-based compute. And Anthos just makes that easier, so it bridges the gap of um, standing up the platform to the distribution, but then also consistent through uh, Anthos Config Manager allows you to push push out common security policies to all clusters under management, right? And if you think about that, that's where it starts, but that tool really can push out any Kubernetes artifact. So I can tell it to stand up security rules, I can tell it to deploy core applications that are required in every data center, or every application like my monitoring platforms, and things like that. And so it's a very powerful tool before that we were writing this all in CI/CD pipelines right we were we were having to build bespoke systems to push out these things and so you're seeing a shift in the market now to higher level orchestration leveraging kubernetes and you know google just released uh, cloud config which is like the next evolution of this and we're seeing startups in the market also attacking the problem this way where if i have a kubernetes cluster out there so i spin up a gke cluster in in google i can now orchestrate the rest of my cloud via that cluster through uh, what kubernetes calls a a uh, custom resource definition, the CRD, um, that gives your now application teams the power to spin up, you know, pub sub services. They need database services. They need everything they need via one artifact and tool that they're describing it in, uh, which is that Kubernetes artifact. So that's really the power and the portability of it. And then, as John mentioned, there's lots of other tools in it, like for workload migration. If you want to work, you know, move a VM into a container, that's something the tool that the Anthos platform supports doing. Um, as well as what becomes very problematic is how do you bridge old applications into these new applications as you're migrating them? So things like uh, Istio and multi, uh, multi-cluster Istio within there, what I think Anthos calls it their Anthos Service Mesh um, is what it's actually called. So it's a layer above the core of like open source Istio product, but it adds the capability then to bridge in services from other data centers or cloud data centers into a single fabric, right? Uh, service mesh type fabric.
0: I like the uh, Chipotle reference because yeah. I want my tacos. I want them secure and I want them fast. And that could be like an Anthos marketing campaign.
2: Exactly. And there's a disclaimer here. I'm not saying Chipotle is a customer. I have no idea. I didn't say it was either. Yeah. So I want to make sure that's
0: clear. Is if you had, Chipotle actually sounds like an app that would be like on Anthos, like Chipotle by Anthos. Totally. Yeah. Right? Better tacos faster. Um, Yep. Everybody loves tacos. All right. So the the company name, your company name, IGNW, and then... You guys remember like there's no reference and I see the games over here. There's no reference to like IGN. Like what does IGNW stand for?
2: Yeah, so that's an interesting one. So because we bought the original business, uh, it came with a brand name, right? And so that was InfoGroup Northwest. And so uh, the, the traditional business that Andy Cadwell came in and acquired before he recruited us to help him build this next generation solution provider was really a, a contract software uh, development business, right? Um, and what he noticed was the business had great recruiting talent and great ability to staff resources, um, but it was being delivered to, to customers in a way that uh, wasn't a modern um, consultative type business. And so he wanted to take that layer in a consultative approach that worked well with uh, vendors. And so that's the point at which we took the company national is when we said, hey, let's convert this to an acronym and disassociate the brand from being PAC Northwest. Right. And so that's where it became IGNW or some customers like to say IGNU, which is my favorite pronunciation. IGNU. <laughs> Ignu. <Yeah. laughs> but I like it. it's essentially just the acronym for the original uh Info Group Northwest.
0: Oh so that's nice.
2: that's the brand. Um, but so what that means is we don't just help customers with consulting, right? We'll come in and a lot of customers really appreciate this because when you're making this pivotal shift in your business, you have to think of it as like a 10x change, right? So we defined, you know, in the startup world, a new product has to be 10x different than the last product that hit the market for it to really hold on and take take the market over and convert customers, right? And it's 10x improvement. That's what we're doing in this this digital um, transformation processes that we're bringing out to customers and the consulting that we do it's really a 10x shift in the way they think about how they build their software how they deliver their software to market it's a huge change for those organizations so it's really nice for us to be able to also help them recruit the staff and place that staff within their organization for the longevity of their company as they make that transition
0: oh nice you guys do recruiting too
2: yeah, so we have a huge talent pipeline, and that's due to the fact that we have dedicated recruiters that are constantly recruiting for the top 10 job roles that we actually do within our consulting business. So there are cases like a customer that we're doing in California where they're moving uh, really, really fast. Uh, they've got a team spun up to work on the cloud native approach, but they still have to support their legacy solution or their classic solution. And so we're helping them move that into GCP so that they can reduce data center provisioning times from you know six months to about three to six weeks. But in order to do that, we're moving really fast, right? To hit their timelines and their team is not going to keep up with ingesting all the knowledge they would need to operate that environment, to run that environment. So as part of that agreement, we're bringing in two additional resources to that project that are actually left with the customer after we leave. So after our consulting project is done, they have two domain experts now that understand all these modern patterns, practices, and tools uh, to
1: support their environment going
0: forward. John, what are you most excited about right now?
1: I'd say really what's uh, what's got me excited and what uh, what I think is really going to be interesting for the future is the potential that the uh, truly distributed computing models, so things like 5G uh, as it becomes more widespread, things like edge, you know, as the edge devices get more powerful, smaller, lower power consumption, the ability to push things like computer vision or um you know data deep data analysis out to more and more devices and decentralize the the processing of data i think is going to open up a lot of possibility and a lot of really cool tech that we haven't yet really uh, as a as an industry haven't really wrapped our brains around and you start to see this i mean we got some cool companies out there um there's a you know there's a laundry list of companies that are starting to investigate this space but as we start to see more practical applications i think the the distributed the trend towards a more distributed ecosystem in our industry is really gonna uh, is really gonna open up some cool, interesting use cases, and I'm excited to see what's out there. I mean, you know, we talk about you hear self-driving cars, um, you know, drones, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles in general. That's obviously an interesting use case. Talk about how we can help consumers better, uh, help help we can help healthcare patients better at the edge, personalized medicine. Things like that, uh, all of that, I think, is is just going to be completely revolutionary. I think we're just at the tip of that that technology.
0: Yeah, and I, I like it. I actually look into a lot of like the personalized medicine. Uh, my, I got a bunch of doctors in my family, and and I just happen to be interested in health related things. And the we know so little. Like we feel like we know we do know a lot, but at the same time, there's so many unanswered questions uh, about our biology and our physiology and that's like a real popular area. And like just the other day I was, I went and and my parents own like a wellness center, uh, weight loss and wellness and health medicine center. And uh, I got a bunch of different blood tests. Like I got a macronutrient blood test. I got a a general labs work, which is like uh, testosterone and blood cell counts and different things like that. And then I got uh, an allergy one, which like tests me against like 96 different foods to see like what percentage, like it's like a spectrum. It's not like you're allergic or not. It's like what percentage does your body react to these things? And so I'm still waiting on those results, right? They're going to be back in like a couple of weeks. But I got really interested in that. And then I was looking for software and things to start. Uh, Beginning of this year, I started tracking every single thing I'm eating. Uh, weighing all my food. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, what's the biggest piece of technology that you use? That's not your phone. And I said, it's my scale, my food scale. <laughs> I use it all the time. Right. right. And because it's amazing, like how many calories you're consuming. And, and when you start actually weighing it out to the gram, understanding that uh, it's what, what this all brought up was this idea that, you know, tracking the changes in your blood. And it's very difficult. Like we have such little data on our actual fluctuations of health. I mean, it's such a laborious task to get all this blood drawn, send it off. It's like $1,000, you know, get your test results back, track your stuff. And then, you know, you have to do that again, like a right. month later, you're not even going to do it like on a daily basis. I think we're going to see a lot of these devices improve and get, go from huge, big devices that are inside of these, farms that process your biological matter and i think this is going to shrink and come and be more personal and then i also like what you were saying about the future like in all the movies i see it's like it's a it's a device that's like ambiguous, you know, it's like a it's like a, a sheet of glass or like a screen. You, there's no branding on it. Any screens around you in the room, you just toss toss your screen onto. It's like we don't own the things, they're very interchangeable. You could just smash it and pick up another one and enter your ID. I think that's 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 the future. And when I see that, I think, well, then the data would have to be all processed like off the device.
1: Well, yeah, and I I think what what we're going to see is, to your point, is the democratization of of data processing and it's going to, it is going to become more distributed and service providers are going to look at ways to get services, right, whether, um, I guess today we would call those cloud services, I guess in the future we'll probably call them something like near edge. Or uh, you know, or I think fog has emerged as a way to describe that. But it's gonna, there'll still be central processing or central storage. It'll just be much closer to the consumer, um, and and it'll be less centralized than it is today because the connectivity will be there, the processing power will be there, and I think that's going to enable some of that really cool, uh, again, some of those really cool use cases where. You know, I I look at, you know, what's happened with glucose monitors, to your point about uh, blood testing, right? It used to be that glucose testing was extremely labor intensive and extremely time intensive. And now um, a friend of mine has a a son with diabetes and he gets alerts on his phone if his glucose is off. And to me that the power of technology like that to really improve people's lives is what's uh, that's what I'm really looking forward to. It's a cool time that we get to live in.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of space, like white space. I'm always looking for where's the, I I have that issue of like being entrepreneurial and it's like, I don't want to boot up a business that there's 10 of them. That's a proven market. That's the safest place to do it. So you want a
2: blue ocean.
0: (laughs) You want a blue, there you go. You've read the book. Yeah, so what's your blue ocean then at IGNU? (laughs)
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question. We're always riding the wave. So we're definitely not the consulting company that's a fast follower or follower at all. We're always on the edge. So you you talk about these problems and what's emerging in my head is, you know, and that's part of what we own, you know, conjointly with John and I and the OCTO is really understanding where we're at on that wave and what's the next wave that's coming in. And so you think about, you know, some of the problems we are talking about in healthcare and distributed data and stuff and we've already seen that technologies like blockchain can help to solve that, right? It can provide security, it can provide the distribution models, but there's a lot of engineering that has to happen to move like a healthcare solution off of its proprietary back-end database systems onto a solution like blockchain where every clinician is providing data into the into the system, right? Um, so that when you go from one doctor at Providence to another doctor at um Another healthcare provider, that data is shared and there's no integration directly between those two entities, you know, that the fabric is taking care of the integration of that data and that the data really belongs to you and follows you, right? So it may be sharded up and distributed to all those different places, but it really is being tracked back to you and it floats around with you. So when you talk about that idea that you could have this device and just throw it away, I think it's a similar technology to that. I don't know if, you know, blockchain is the right technology. I haven't done any, you know, expert level research in these problems in that space, but I would say when I look at it from a macro viewpoint, it surely starts to show uh, signs of the technology could could handle the distribution, could handle chain of custody. You know, for both manufacturing and problems like in healthcare or finance, right? And obviously, it's go-to-market was the the Bitcoin and and finance markets. But uh, in reality, I think you'll see it pivot, and and it'll probably be attacked in more of a healthcare market or something else that has a a very high level of sensitivity to data. Uh, But that's essentially, you know, uh, we're constantly looking for that next wave and building our business in that way. So we're not essentially building products at at IGNW. We're building consulting products that help customers build their products um, better.
0: So you guys haven't outsourced or like spun out one of your internal projects yet?
2: No, I think we're still a little early in the life cycle. If you look at our business, we really look at ourselves as three years old. And so in the last three years, we've seen, you know, um, I want to say around 200% growth or something in our actual business overall, both from a staff perspective and from a revenues perspective. And so, you know, today's challenges are figuring out, how to better operationalize what we have in market for us and for our customers. And then what's the next thing that we're going to go after. And I think those ideas around products start to emerge on things like Kubernetes. You know, I think the teams have plenty of ideas that can be pulled into product. Um, it's a matter of timing for us. I think, you know, if we were to do that, when we would do it, how we would do
0: it. Yeah. It'll come obvious at some, I mean, you guys are growing fast. I saw you had like over a couple, you had like 150 people plus on LinkedIn. I know it's probably yep. not official, but like, yeah, I saw you guys were growing really quickly and uh, I love what you were doing and then I also saw you guys were big nerds with uh, your Google fellow. I want to just call it like Google nerd, but they they call it a nicer word. They call it Google fellow. What's that? How are you like the you're, there's you're two of the 20 people in the world that are Yeah,
2: John, do you yeah. want to you want to give them your your opinion on what that program was and and, and what we uh, participated in? Sure.
1: So, yeah, the Google Cloud Certified Fellow is the actual uh, title that Phil and I were uh, were lucky enough to earn, and we were uh, we were selected uh, among you know all, all sorts of Google partners and customers to go uh, to Redwood City and participate in this uh, the first round of examinations and to really help uh, help Google develop that program early on, and uh, and it was. It was, a, it was a pretty big honor, and really, what that what the program is, it's not just. And this is where it's different from traditional technical certifications or traditional certifications. Is yes, it's a certification uh, that Google has. There is a an exam requirement, but there's also an interview panel, and there's um, some some criteria that you have to meet to even be considered, and really focused on um, the business aspects of helping customers and helping your uh, your organization so for for customer and customers helping their organization and for partners like IGNW helping our customers to achieve digital transformation using Google Cloud Um, so uh, you know when we think of uh, traditional technical certification you think okay I go in I take sit down I take a multi-choice multiple choice test or maybe a practical test and I, I have to nerd out on some um, some technology, I have to enter some commands. I have to maybe design some stuff. Uh, this was, you know, obviously there was that component of it. There was a a lot of technical, there was a a lot of technical challenge. Uh, it was very difficult. I think it was Phil and I probably spent a combined total of about 12 to 15 hours in labs, uh, building out solutions using Google cloud. But there was also the, like I said, that business aspect of it. And, and they asked us questions, uh, tough questions around, you know, how would you do this from a financial perspective? How would you handle the staffing side and mentoring and, um, up leveling a business, not just, you know, deploying tech. And so that's what really, for me, really cemented that this certification and this program, this, this was different from others in the market. And it really puts it as, I think a step above, um, of course, Google's own professional level certifications, but also some certifications from, from competing companies in that space. And that is, uh, That was really cool so again it was it was an honor to be to be selected you know we were two of the first uh round of of folks that got invited to come take the certification i anticipate there's going to be a lot more people that are very you know they've had a lot of interest in it it's google's done a great job with the program they're continuing to improve it phil and i have both made commitments to help them uh help to help the google team uh improve that certification and um and improve the program through mentorship and Um, and feedback.
0: So it's a great yeah. So I want I want to know the answer to the the that like how how do you answer that question? Because you know we have we happen to build like an entire business off of of leadership and manage you know training new managers and tech teams and growing leaders within organizations. And so like outside of this podcast, I eat, sleep and breathe that. So I'm curious like what's your perspective uh, when when you were talking with Google and, and you were going through this certification about how you mentor and grow grow the people on the team.
1: Yeah, I think I think it was, and I, you know, it was obviously a long day, um, so I'm I, I'm not going to have the answers verbatim. But you know, obviously, a large part of that is, um, you know, Phil and I have both been in the industry a very long time. We both have the uh, experience. We've both been there, done that. And I think empathy goes a long way when helping to grow an engineering team. Uh, looking obviously looking for technical ability, but also looking for skills. You know, and trying to find ways to identify skills that are not purely technical. So we look for uh, folks that are. You know that have a strong ability to learn, have a strong desire to learn, uh, that um, are uh, easily I say easily uh, that are that are part, you know easily integrated into the team or that are part of a team, right? So so it's not just about building a strong technical team. It's about building a team that works together cohesively, bringing diverse skill sets together. And I think that's oftentimes in our industry, it's very easy to underrate the value of a diverse team so oftentimes we hear "Oh, all that matters is technical ability and, and that's not true uh having especially on a, on a larger team um you know when you start talking part large technical team at any of these large organizations we work with it's not about just technical ability it's about diverse solutions to problems and thinking you know people that think differently and can bring different skills to the table so looking for those Uh, Those skills are key and I wish I had a silver bullet or a a magic the magic answer for how to screen for that unfortunately um, For years and years of trying um, my answer is still you just got to develop a knack and ultimately uh, and and I know you know this Joel, but um, You're gonna make some mistakes And so you have to you have to acknowledge when you make a bad hire or a person's not a good fit for an organization and you have to be committed to coaching and be committed to uh, to helping uh, helping in that in that regard as well um phil you want to kind of elaborate on that
2: yeah i mean i think it's 50 percent. you know um finding the people that have the technical expertise the experience the acumen the other 50 percent, as john was hinting at is really your what is your what is your ambition what is your aptitude to learn new things you know are you the engineer that has three side hustles going on right and you're working all the time and that that to me is always a sign that you know they always say give give the hardest problem to the busiest person Because they're the busiest because they solve all the hard problems, right? And so you just keep loading them up. So we kind of look for that in in a certain way. But I think in terms of addressing, like, how you grow this, it's really – having good onboarding you know having good training programs having good mentorship programs because even though you've trained somebody on something you know if i take um, somebody out and say go build the anthos architecture for this fortune 50 company and this is their first time doing it if i don't enable them with john or myself or somebody that has the experience of doing this so that they have you know a direct upline to expertise to help them alleviate a political issue happening within the organization, uh, you know, it's, it's required to uh, train up that leadership team so that they understand it, but do it in a way that's non-technical, right? Because part of that is being able to speak about very complex things in non-technical terms so that they can understand the business value and the drivers of, of doing that, right? And so I think it's that those types of key components. I know when I I did a short set at Nike and one of the things we did was communities of practice. And I think those were hugely valuable for both engineers and leadership to join because you could attack it from a theory or from working on the project problem that you were trying to solve within those meetings. And so I think those are good ways that you can foster that growth and mentorship. So I think having a formal, you know, formalizing your mentorship program is, is key. Formalizing a training program and an onboarding program is key.
0: So do you guys have a formal program at, at uh, Igno? it's
2: funny you should say that right that was one of the struggles we came into this year with and so john and i took the rest of the team offsite for a week and we went through our top 10 problems in the business that we believe that the office of cto needs to solve and you know, that was one key aspect of it is how do we continue to keep this velocity well we we can't do it unless we have those formalized programs. So our teams are putting those together, and then they'll be packaged also in a way that we can deliver that as product to our customers, right? So it's the same. The beauty of our business is we we experience that growth, the same problems our customers experience at growth, right, or at transition if they already are large trying to get into these modern practices. So a lot of what we're out in field doing, we already have content on. We're already out. We've got experts speaking on Agile, right? You can't do DevOps if you don't understand Agile. Layers on top of it. And so you can buy all these tools and try and put them in place, but you don't get the value of those tools if you don't understand the underlying people process changes that need to happen uh, to leverage them. And so we've got a lot of this that we're doing. Um, That's been chiefly done by a bunch of experts, right, that are domain experts in their field. We're now formalizing that, right? So we can bring people into the organization, train them up quickly. And as John was saying, you know, realize that, hey, they're an expert in VMware and on-prem, but... They've done a few automation projects. They're not an expert in automation. How do we get them to become an expert in automation? We need training programs and mentorship to do that.
0: You guys got some uh, when you when you went and visited Google. You, you became two of the twenty people. And then I heard you. You've got some treats. Or you've got some uh, some special things for us today.
2: Yeah. So we put together an offer for your audience um, of the podcast, and uh, you know a lot of. Uh, getting to a point where you can even leverage something like um, an Anthos or a Google cloud is really understanding at first, you know, what's your environment look like, where are you at today? Where do you need to go? And so we put together kind of an environment assessment offer for the people that go to igw.io slash modern CTO to go with the podcast. Um, The first 10 customers will will come in and and, um, give them an environment assessment and kind of help them understand what the next step is in their journey.
0: That's pretty cool. So they go, we'll put that in the show notes because people are like driving and stuff. Yep. But it's uh, ignw.io forward slash modern CTO. And Correct. I'm just going to fill out like a form and you guys are going to talk with them about it? Yep, they'll fill out a form. Actually,
2: um, Casey Bleeker and his team. So Casey is the one that uh, is uh, responsible for advocacy enablement for our cloud programs at at IGNW. So he runs this. He's actually the one that put this together with you. I think you've been working with Casey on, you know, getting us on the podcast. Um, But essentially he runs a program for Google to help customers understand what their journey would look like to get into Google Cloud. And he he does that for IGNW.
0: Have you guys gotten to the point where you're like making IGNW hats or hoodies or anything like that?
2: We do. We've got hoodies. We've got swag. We've got these cool water bottles here. Ooh, that is <laughs> awesome! Are, uh, this the Earthwell ones; they're uh, really, really fun. And then, yeah, we all have jackets and, and hoodies. But yeah, yeah, we're definitely the t-shirt, t-shirt technology group. We're not the the IBM business suits. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a big Peter Thiel fan of his statement when he said that you know I invest in t-shirts, not not suits. Um, I believe you have to be a technologist first uh, in any of these businesses to really to really drive value and, and understand the problems that the customers going through.
0: Every morning for 14 years I wake up do my exercise put on my tuxedo and write code for 12 hours. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> Said no one ever. <laughs> I just the visualization of me in a tuxedo writing code is just like it's funny it make, it tickles my mind. It, yep.
2: We should do a hackathon with that.
0: Tuxedo <laughs> the tuxedo hackathon. <laughs> We we should find a way, uh partner with like Get Clear or somebody, measure the um, lack of productivity.
2: <laughs> right. I totally, yeah, everybody yeah. stretching their collar constantly.
0: <laughs> can you, can you buy, uh, buy your stuff online? Like, can you, can oh, I Oh, that's an interesting things? question. You can't
2: buy it, but I'm sure we can get Casey to send you something. But we don't, we don't, we don't actually sell it. We give it to our customers.
0: See, that's the thing. Like everyone I come across, they'll have like cool brands. Like I had, um. Uh, a lubo he has this one called strive and like Strv, and uh dude really cool looking graphic like brand and he had like a hoodie and i'm like can i go online and buy he's like oh no he's like we can we have marketing maybe like ship you one or something but uh, th- i'm i've become a fan of companies like when i when i like the brand i like the way it looks and then i like the person I'm like, dude, get, I, I, let me go buy a hoodie. I'll spend 60 bucks, buy a hoodie and I'll wear it around and stuff because because then I'm wearing a hoodie that has a story. Like if I if I went to like the mall and bought a hoodie, it's like, yeah, I bought the hoodie that everybody else bought at the mall. Right. Yep. But if I'm wearing this, I'm like, dude, I talked to Phil and John, the two best people in the world of the Google program, right? There's other 18 people we're not even gonna talk about. <laughs> Just kidding. We love the other 18 people. Oh. What else do you guys want to talk about? I'm excited. I'm having a good day.
1: So I think, um, um you know, we're excited to, 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 engage with, uh, with your listeners. And as Phil said, we've got that offer out there, but, um, you know, at, at a broader sense, um, you know, we've got just in general, how do you even get started? I'm sure some of your listeners are like, you know, how do I even get started with, uh, with Anthos and Google cloud in general? Um, and, if that is something that's interesting, obviously IGNW is here to support you on that journey. Um, But, uh, but they do have uh, evaluation licenses available and it is available to, um, to, uh, to existing Google customers, just reach out to your, your sales team. But um, it's, I would say it's, it's pretty cool and it's, uh, they got some neat stuff coming down the pipeline. So I'd encourage everybody to take a look at it. So so who, Um,
0: who should, who's like the most ideal everyone does at least, you know, me being a founder, I'm really heavily involved in marketing. You guys are too, especially um, being the CTOs. What's your ideal customer profile? Like who should, who, we got a lot of a huge range of people listening and like who should perk up and pay attention and say, maybe I should talk with these guys.
2: Yeah, I would say we, we work with all customers, but you know, if you looked at the majority of our portfolio, it's, you know, the fortune 2000 around the globe um, within the U S is the fortune 100, you know, um, and then. You know, it's what Cisco, I think, used to call uh, select customers is the next level, which is kind of the upper end of the middle market. Um, and so I would say if we were shying away from any customer group, it would probably be SMB unless, you know, that customer is a startup with high growth, high velocity potential. And so when it comes to like working with startups, we're probably working with startups that have, you know, raised, you know, classically a Series A. Uh, it's That's so nebulous these days to talk about different round round terms but you know if you've raised a substantial amount of money you know 20 million dollars and you're deploying capital to create efficiencies and and create efficiencies in your product development delivery process then we're definitely on board and so we've got a number of customers like that in our portfolio we're helping them where they've reached kind of that product market fit and maturity and they're moving to the next step outside of that it's generally large enterprise you know is where we're helping solve a lot of problems
0: yeah, and as you get like your business is growing, so is ours. And like I'm starting to develop new ways of how we see it. And it's like okay, you can hire pretty well for like known, repeatable processes that that cash flow positive, that yield a result. We know we offer this line of business. We know that this is the sweet spot of the market, and we know that we can hire this type of role. And there's there's, or we could train this role into this role. And so we've got those. But to get that like outside the box thinking, that gave me a new perspective of like how consultancies can work. Like if you need top notch in the know people who are like ridiculously brilliant with massively bright ideas and you just, if you want, basically if you want clones of yourself, but that have different experience that aren't eating and and breathing the same air you are and and have the same views, because it's so valid to get someone from outside to come in and they can just look at it for one second and say, Oh, you probably want to do that because I've seen 50 companies do it. Right. And so it's like really, really useful to do that. And so I'm always keeping my Rolodex chocked full of those people. I'm like, all right, this is my AI people. Right. These are my consulting people. These are my. So I'm going to put you guys as like my cloud people. Yep.
2: Yeah. I would say that's also we probably need to give you a bigger picture of the company. We're talking a lot about cloud today, but. You know, if you look at our company, we go to go to market full stack, just like our customers, right, from the data center to the cloud. So, you know, we do on, on-prem on data center, modernize in place, private cloud. Uh, we do native software development, you know, cloud native software development, in the five po- popular languages like Java, .NET, you know, um, React, uh, Node.js, Golang. And actually, um, that becomes an important Piece of the the journey for most customers, they're not going to carry their legacy platforms forward without rewriting them, right? And that's actually a shocking statistic the IDC has says something like 400 million apps will be rewritten in the next four years, and that is pretty shocking. But the reality is, um, it's going to happen in small bites, right? It's this, this microservices pattern that enables this heterogeneous capability that you need in your company to allow teams that are running product to make decisions about the entire stack, right? And so as customers start to implement those patterns, and we do a lot of consulting coaching on software development and those patterns, they start to hit true velocity, which is then underpinned by a lot of the other things we do in our business like DevOps and SRE, right? That without that, you really can't apply microservices because now you went from building one monolithic application that you deliver twice a quarter to shipping 40 independent microservices um, a couple times a day in some cases, right? Or even hundreds of times a day in the case of a company like Netflix that's reached maturity on these these types of concepts so there's there's lots of it to this puzzle and then the last piece is you know big data and AI ML. and so we have a practice around that as well but it's much more around the data custody the design the pipelining how we move it we don't have a a huge team of data scientists in there to write your algorithm for you what we have is a huge team of people that really understand this from a software engineering computer science background on how you get efficiency and building and training models and delivering those models how do you build it and train it in the cloud, but run it on your edge device on a Cisco hyperflex box that's built for the edge, right? Where that that machine learning model needs to actually run. Um, So that's kind of where we add expertise in that. And I would say in that market, you're seeing a huge shift. It's another 10x shift between how we built big data systems, how we thought about data in the past, right? Fourth normal form and all these super rationalized data models to now let's flatten it out and store it everywhere and distribute it and converge it back together at the time at which we need to do analytics or reporting on it. And so those are different ideas, right? You throw away things like OLAP cubes and you move to things like BigQuery um, to ingest and, and store that data. And then you use, you know, machine learning on top of it to actually do something with it rather than a dashboard that an executive's going to look at and eventually make a decision. We're putting those algorithms out there
0: instead. How are you guys growing the business? Are are you like Spending time with CTOs or you know, engineering type people, and you're building those relationships, and then it's coming up naturally, like oh, we're having a conversation about these problems, and then you say, oh, we might be able to help with it. Like, help paint a picture of like how you how you actually grow this business.
1: Sure. So one of the things that we we obviously do a ton of evangelism uh, about modern practice and uh, patterns and practices. We're out there speaking to uh, our peers in the industry, to customers, to partners. You know, finding out. What challenges they're experiencing, and then uh, helping them overcome those. And that's um, typically, you know, we will have a conversation. A lot of our engagements, you know, we're not a real sales-heavy organization. Um, we don't, you know, we don't have a fleet of salespeople out there pounding the ground. What we do is we have, you know, we we do have some sales folks, obviously, but really it's it's about relationships and trying to build build that relationship, that trusted advisor relationship with our customers, and then delivering on. Uh, on the promise to help them with their challenges and bringing in the engineering talent um, to bear and we have some really really good engineers that work for our company Um, and we can talk a little bit about how we've built that engineering organization and why our our culture helps us keep top talent and recruit top talent But, but really it's like you said it's about building that relationship it's about getting into a customer's environment understanding their challenges understanding that you know while we may have some opinionated approaches and we may have some uh, solutions that we can apply across the industry uh, that, that it's probably not a one-size-fits-all and the customers are going to have unique uh, unique needs and then designing a solution to meet those needs and that that we find that really builds a rapport with our customers and that you know shows them that we're, we're invested in their success so we're not a typical you know if you think of uh, consulting companies from you know, 10 years ago, the typical consulting company would come in and they would put somebody a, what we call a button seat. And they would just be there for years and billing away. And they weren't really invested in your success. And we've built a business around being invested in our customer's success. So it's mutual, uh, you know, mutually driving a, a desired outcome. And that's what really delivers value to our customer.
0: So how how do you get that engineering culture? Like, how do you get it? To be good, how do you get it so it's cyclical and constantly feeding itself with top talent?
1: And so um, the first, you know, first key is obviously uh, top talent begets top talent. So you know, you hire if you hire A players, they're going to bring other A players uh, because it's an exciting place to work. It's you know, you have everybody likes to work with with uh, rock stars, and so the more rock stars you can bring to the table, uh, the better off you're going to be. The other thing we do is we we try to focus on challenging work. So um, well, you know, in any industry, there's always going to be things that are more mundane. If we tackle hard problems, what we find is, as Phil had said, you know, busy people are the ones that are good at solving are usually good at solving hard problems, and we like those people. We like people who are interested, who are naturally curious, who go after solving hard problems, and then we we take those to the customer, and the customers like us because we like solving their hard problems. So we don't um we don't shirk away from solving you know, solving the next hard thing.
2: Yeah, that's actually in our mission statement. So it's at the core values of the company. You know, we're engineering led, not sales led. We have a handful of salespeople that help support some of our older uh, go to market functions from the original business, as well as um, help with some of the inbound related sales. But we're heavily um, what? Uh, our founder would call a reverse channel model. So, you know, we're partnered with the Googles and the Cisco's of the world at an OEM level and they're driving leads into our business. And then we're also partnered with their partners that are driving leads into our business. And so we, you know, where they have hundreds of thousands of, of people in their sales forces globally, they can drive that top of funnel demand, but they don't always have the engineering talent uh, at this level. To go deliver on those outcomes for their customers. And so it's a great way for us to partner with them. We can focus on engineering and they can focus on sales. And so that's, that's how we've gone to market, which is what's created this velocity and growth. Um, in terms of how we're continuing to grow our, our field, I think John did a great job of explaining that engineering field. You know, if you're, if you're trying to put Kubernetes on satellites, engineers want to come work for you, right? If if you're, (laughs) if you're putting, you know, healthcare applications or, working on something like VDI and Kubernetes or something that's not even a thing yet, right? Where there's some experimental stuff going on, engineers wanna come talk to you, you know? Begets, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, they still are interested, right? That you're, you're you're on the cutting edge. You're doing things that nobody else is doing, and there's an opportunity there. So it's a lot of the reason probably, Joel, you and I got into creating startups is, you know, I personally, what do I get excited about? Any business problem? Any technology problem? Like, I like solving problems, right? That's what I found out to, about myself. I'm just an inquisitive, creative thinker, and that's, that's what I enjoy most. So whether it's solving this problem of how we scale our engineering talents, or whether it's you know, like I was doing this week, writing code with my team to help them solve problems with dynamic content from, you know, a headless CMS system that we need to render dynamic pages in their React framework. Like I I live and breathe both ends of the spectrum and we've built our teams in that same way, right? So our leadership team, I would say, you know, 80% of them are under that same guide and breeding. And for sure, everybody on my team is that way. If John can't just speak about the tech. John's one of our best engineers. If If you're running into a hybrid network problem, the chances are John solved it in the past, right? And, and we can pull the, the end on court and say, hey, John, can you come in and help this engineer on this project? Um, they're kind of stuck. So we're, we're definitely much more technical, you know, CTOs and technical as an organization uh, to the fact at which I think Google has called us their most technical partner at times.
0: Oh, I love it. That's exciting.
1: So, yeah, another yeah, thing man. that's that's really key is, uh, obviously, we, we value our employees, you know, quite a bit. And the, uh, the business does you know demonstrate that through through different methods but the other thing that's been really helpful in growing the talent as quickly as we have is that we don't just hire in one geography so even though what you we know we're headquartered in portland uh, we have uh, a large number of customers in uh, several geographies but we'll hire somebody anywhere We right. so we don't hire for location and we don't hire for um for a specific role necessarily, what we recruit for is talent, and then we figure out how to fit that talent into the business. So we we look for talent when the talent's available. We look for people when they're ready to make a move and when they're interested, and regardless of where they live, regardless of um, you know what what we need at the, at this very moment. Um, and if so, if for example, if we're not hiring a um, let's say we're not hiring a cloud engineer, we don't have an opening right now for a cloud engineer. Um, although that that never happens, but but let's say, (laughs) let's say for instance, that that was the case, but we had a rock star cloud engineer that, that was their experience. You know, that person's going to be able to adapt and they're going to be able to do what our customers need. So we're going to look for that, that caliber of individual. And again, regardless of geography, regardless of, um, of, of kind of the, the, the general, um, you know, the, those other factors that are sometimes constraining for some businesses. And we, a lot of our engagements are, most of our engagements are remote led. So we, unlike uh, traditional consulting companies, you know, we don't necessarily, although we, we do for some engagements, we do have on site staff, but most of our engagements are entirely remote. You know, we'll do a couple of trips to the customer site. And then we've got amazing technology for, you know, we have. Uh, Webex, Hangouts, uh, we have uh, G Suite Zoom. for collaboration. We have all that stuff, right? Zoom, so, yeah. <laughs> so we have all of those things available to to really make sure that we can get the right people engaged to solve a problem. So it's uh, it's the right person, not the person that's closest.
2: Yeah, you make a point on the technology, right? Like Zoom. So you go into a Nike, they get to choose what their conferencing platform is going to be because we're consulting it's more important for us to understand how we interact in this distributed nature, not necessarily what tool we're using, because I'll have to take Skype calls, Zoom calls, Google calls, uh, Hangouts calls, right, Uh, WebEx calls. We tend to use the technology our customer's most comfortable with, because then it gives them the best experience, because they're comfortable using that online technology. But at the end of the day, what we've realized is, you know, it's around that distributed culture, and the tools can be interchanged, but it's how your team communicates and interacts with each other, you know? Being comfortable to say, hey, John, let's throw up a Hangouts right now and, and whiteboard this problem that I'm experiencing, right? Um, the same way that I would just walk down the hall uh, to his office and say, hey, can I drop it and, and talk to you? So it's it's really about empowering the workforce to leverage those things and creating a culture that uh, makes that successful.
0: Yeah, and then all, all the softwares aren't equal too. So we learned today because of this uh, because of the virus and everybody, we're pretty distributed as it is, but we still have some people in the office, but then we went fully distributed this week and we usually slack right and we noticed that the experience like calls were dropping and stuff and connections were dropping and so we said all right let's do it this morning on zoom and with all the faces and everything and i don't i haven't used hangouts a lot so they they may have that too but the way the faces were organized on the screen actually makes a really large difference in the quality of of the experience of the call
2: yeah, that's huge. And that's one of our core values in, in the way we do internal meetings, 100% of them, we want video on, you know, we want to see each other, we want to interact. And what I've noticed, and I'm just horrible, if 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 you do give me a conference call, I'm spending half the time in my brain trying to understand who's talking, because it's generally always a new audience for me. Whereas if we throw it up in a zoom, and I can see the faces, after they've talked once, I kind of know who's talking, because I visually map their face to their sound. And then I remember, oh, yeah, that was the VP of engineering, or that was the director of DevOps, or they were in the room. So I think it adds huge value to, to use that technology.
0: Yeah, it's like my GPU creating the visualization of everybody versus just consuming it. It takes way more brain power. It's way more distracting for me. I'm always I always have this like mental image of a table and like circles and people going around. And in my mind trying to track that on a call, yep. it's just like this is ridiculous. And then it's and then then you get the, the box with like the J in it. It's like, how impersonal is that? Right? Like, I, don't, I don't care if you're at home, you got cats around you or whatever like just flip it on, man. Yep. You
1: know yeah video has has definitely transformed remote work. Uh, the, you know and the, the just the prevalence of you know, there's a camera in almost every laptop now, you know everybody's got almost everybody's got a webcam at least in, in most engineers. I know that it's not always the case, but uh, definitely on our team, right, as Phil said, video first, we actually have a communication hierarchy um that that we can sort of preference wise we say look video is best and it's not just the association the mental association it's also subtle cues as you know right there's subtle cues when you're talking to somebody about facial expressions and things like that that they're just lost in audio only conversations and it just makes the collaboration experience that much more uh efficient that much more effective when when we have more um more tools to to communicate so that's that's definitely a big part of our culture is uh and a part of retaining the, the talent that we have is that uh, not just in-person communication but also strong remote uh culture and strong supportive of tooling to do that and so even at our even at our headquarters every room has a telepresence or a uh a video conferencing system in it it's got cameras and giant screens and decent microphones and um that what we find and and strangely enough, what we find is we go to some customer sites and you've got four or five people huddled around somebody's cell phone and it's, it's a terrible experience. So um, we actually have an entire part of our business that's devoted to helping customers improve, uh, communication and, um, collaboration. That's, that's actually a big, big thing for us is look, we know how to do this. We can help you do it better too.
2: Yeah. It's also, pretty relevant this week, right? With everybody. I think everybody on this call is probably at home, you know, in self quarantine working. And so the market, yeah, I pretend you are. The market is being forced into this mode, right? So I would say for 10 years, my wife's asked me, why can't you do everything remotely? You're a software guy. Why can't you do it all remotely? And the answer's always been, it's really, it's a, it's a business by business thing. You know, it's been difficult. And that's the reason that, you know, our model is blended, you know, like John mentioned, I percent sure the work's done remotely, but we're still dropping in to give the comfort, the or the customer, the comfort that they need at the beginning, at the end of projects. And so until they invest in the UC technology that we support and we use in the way that we use it, those ideas of doing interactive whiteboarding sessions with a customer, we just haven't had a lot of success. I think this may go down in history as the moment in which the light switch flipped, right? In digital workforce and and it flipped over and it's unfortunate that had to be something like coronavirus in the U.S. and around the globe that's forcing companies into this mode. But you know, we're in a place where technology is there. It's the cultural norms that have to be broke
0: down and changed. And before I get a bunch of angry letters, everyone is out of the office. I'm just in the studio in the office. Everybody's at home, but I just drove drove in ten minutes because we have like the lights and the microphone and everything. Yep. And uh, you know, some people like I, I sent out an email and. Um, was sharing different things about how different CTOs were coping with it, about what they're learning, moving. And at the end, I I put, um, and if you have your favorite meme from COVID, like, because everybody was sharing all these memes and talking to me about, oh, did you see this meme and posting it? And it was like hilarious and it was fun. And then I got, you know, you always get that like one person that's like, this is inappropriate. And I'm just like, look, you know, you know, like I was making jokes at my mom's funeral. Like it's everybody, everybody internalizes and deals with life in their own way and I can't tell you either of you like what's right or wrong for your internal um dealing with the situation but uh I am curious like what's what's your big takeaway you had some people that were in a general headquarters and then they went remote what did you learn from from the transition?
2: that we're already set up for it you know if you look at our business we're set up for it if you talk to some of our partners they're shipping hundreds of thousands of laptops out to customers because they're not set up for it you know so they're sending out devices reconfigured for remote access uh, because their corporate policy still been very limited remote access so i think at, by and large the market is struggling with it you know ig it's a natural motion for us like johnson we hire talent where ta- talent lives that means if you're in tallahassee florida and you've got a laptop and you got a great internet connection, you're a potential employee, right? And, and we're not gonna tell you to move. Uh, we do focus our geographic areas of where we put density of workers, but if the best uh, AIMLI expert lives in Alabama, we're probably gonna hire him, right? Or her, or um, regardless of race, gender, or whatever. You know, We're interested in that diverse culture, and and part of that is diversity in the local culture. You live in the local environment, you live in where you're living. Yeah, we don't. We don't believe that all the talent always lives in one of those popular um, destination cities.
0: Yeah, I hire based on skills and as we need it. It's like I post a job. We have something. You need, I put out to my network, and the first qualified person that comes through that like makes sense like gets the job. <laughs> it's like this isn't a this isn't a game. It's like who's qualified, who can do the work, who wants to work, and like let's just move the business forward. Um, and I love the fact that like everybody I come across in my network has like you know they're similar we we're, were I think the world is becoming a way better place way faster you know like the amount of, of of bad people I think is so small they get amplified a lot but like it's not cool to be egotistical in engineering anymore that's my favorite so- thing about the past decade right it's like that person that comes in and can do it and can all up all night and like you know and every they, they want all the praise like that is not popular anymore it's like how can you help how can you like servant leadership like how can you grow your team how can you help yep. everybody how can you make sure you have a quality of life while doing it those principles being popular is the thing that like warms my heart about like the progress in our industry in the world
1: Yeah. Yep. As, as uh you know our our managing partner andy would say that's that's part of it you know we're a big family here at IGNW. we internalize those things we care about our employees we care about our partners um, you know you try to respect uh try to respect those things right try to respect people's personal time you try to respect their um the difference you know differences and and how each what each person brings to the table so much so that we've actually had um a couple instances where we've we have a strict policy against that, right? We have a strict no jerks policy at IGNW, and uh, we've we've had to we've had to act on that. We've had to, even though the, the people may be technically uh, rock stars, if they're not a good fit, you know, from a societal perspective, if they're if they're too egotistical or if they're not willing to work in a group, you know, we're not we're not going to hire somebody that we can put in a room and slide pizzas under the door and they'll find out <laughs> code, right? <laughs> we we need we need people who can work in teams and who can help our our staff you know help our and their fellow their fellow ignw uh, employees and help our customers if you can't do that then it just doesn't work and we've had to we've had to act on that a couple of times we've had to let folks go and we always you know we have always try to place them we always try to do right by everybody but we've had to help people find employment elsewhere because because uh, they weren't a good fit um, from a
0: you know and that's good for them too because totally what will happen is they'll hear that a lot and then that'll signal eventually for them to reconsider their their choices and habits and behavior patterns. And then they'll come back to you 10 years later and be like, thank you, because this was a huge part of my, like, this was, resp- you started the chain of events that was responsible for my personal growth. Like, the thing, like, I used to not be awesome. I know, believe it or not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe and, it. <laughs> and it was the, fake, news, it, fake news fake news <laughs> it was the frustration um i heard this quote it was like a very meaningful moment for me um but i heard this quote and it was a guy saying um the most frustrating thing in the world is expecting above average results without being an above average person and when i heard that in my in my early 20s i was just like oh my gosh That is my problem i want above average results and i'm not working to be an above average person and so if i if i put in that work you know it it removes the mystery it's like you put in the work you become better you learn you gain the experience right you let the right people go you let the wrong people go you let people go too slow you let people go too like you you make all of these mistakes and and there it's like an ai algorithm without any mistakes it's usually pretty poorly trained, right? Like you, you have to know what not to do, uh, to, to get that experience. And, and so when, when people make mistakes, I I just look for like, are you making the same mistake over and over and over? Or are you making yeah. that mistake and then adapting and, and moving forward?
2: Yeah. I think by and large, that's, you know, somewhat adopted within the industry, this fail culture. I think, you know, certain people have been criticized for doing too much fail, you know, like Facebook's <laughs> example of that, where, you know their customers complain that they're doing too much, pushing out too much disruption, right, in their product via that. But I really do believe that's it. You know, we come into a lot of companies where failing's not an option, and so we end up. And you know, by and large, where we recruit our talent is out of the field. It's not from consulting organizations. We'd rather teach you to be a consultant and have a great technology leader and somebody that's done this in real accounts, uh, done the work. And so a lot of what we're teaching them then is just the art of being a consultant. How do you be a little? little less opinionated at times where you need to convince an architect that your opinion matters you know at a customer yeah you know, those types of things but in large i think it's our servant leadership and our, and you know the respect that we understand that you you have to fail to succeed and that's a key learning initiative within any technology project or any software development project you know you're going to do it wrong the first time and that's heavily what agile is built around right is fail fast fail early fail often fix and and move on and that's core to what we're out teaching customers how to do you know because and sometimes it's a slice of it just come help us build our CICD pipelines we kind of get the ideas and we understand well and we've changed our agile culture but we just can't get over this one technical hurdle you know we don't know what to put in these pipelines we don't know how to how to deal with this because um, you know you're saying we need 100% test coverage to do completely automated deployments well we've got 10 million lines of legacy code how do we deal with that problem You know, do we need to invest 100 million dollars and rewrite it or is there an approach that works for us to, to do both, right? Start new projects under this paradigm and do old projects under another. So I think it is key, you know, and at IGNW, every, everybody in the leadership team is a servant leader. You know, we work for our, our teams and not the other way around. So we, we like to say, task me, don't ask me. You know, if you're struggling with something, task me, don't ask me. I'll go help you fix it and solve it, right? Whether that's lack of knowledge within your own expertise or a challenge with a problem on the team or a challenge with a customer, you know, and potentially a disruptive, you know, one of those non-jerks out of the customer site, right? Where that customer hasn't really adopted what we believe in, what I think by and large that the technology industry has started to adopt and believe in.
0: I love this. I love the long form. I love how long form is getting more popular. It's less about being at a conference, being on stage with five people and getting a 12 second response. And it's more about like having these discussions about like, yes, failing fast is important. You can interpret the soundbite incorrectly and be like, "Oh, we can't fail. We're not." You, you can you can fail fast and then also have a a, a leadership perspective of we're not going to fail. Like you can say we're going to solve this problem, and we're not going to fail at that. But what's going the the mental map you need to have of how we're going to solve this problem is is we're going to look at it like we're running a series of science experiments. And we're not we're not attaching ourselves to the individual experiment. We know we're gonna run this series and some are going to do better. We're gonna run 10, three are gonna do best. We're gonna take the top three, do variations of those, and we're gonna ultimately get to a refined product. But I, I find that like the people who don't spend time learning on like the human side of the business or being involved in the community, there's people that are like, they're in there, they're writing code, they might say, okay, I'm a Rubyist. Or, but then there's people that are like a part of the community. And I find that when you when you join the community, you get all of these additional benefits of of learning these types of con- concepts. Because if you disassociate from the experiment and you just you let it be, but know it's on the path of a proven process to achieve an outcome, then you have confidence in the fact that okay, we can execute this. Uh, it can fail, and but we'll learn, and we can execute this. And then you don't get emotionally pulled down. Uh, and that was something that like. You know, I see a lot of people struggle with. They'll 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 not have success trying to accomplish something on their and they'll have tried. Like I tried, I tried my hardest, I worked twelve hours. It's like yeah, but like if you step back from a macro, you did one thing. Like you beat yourself to death with one thing. You didn't like try different methods to achieve the result. You just went and so yeah, it's tough.
2: Yeah, we actually address that. You know, we, we have that problem internally a lot because we pull these consultants from the companies that, that they've lived in their culture and that culture, the I can't fail culture for so long that, you know, we bring them in and we tell them leverage your team, you know, but we didn't give them a great way to to do that. And so they end up being little remote individuals out working on their own problems and their customers. And some days they're beating themselves up for 12 hours on one problem. And so just recently we implemented something called the Andon cord, right? Which is a, scrum toyota philosophy uh, on pulling that cord when anytime you need help right and it's a value that we truly believe in right like not every engineer is going to have every answer and sometimes you just need somebody else if you've been struggling with it for 30 minutes or an hour and you may even have the expertise to solve the problem you just you need somebody to look over your shoulder and i've done it a hundred times or a thousand times in developing software where i'll struggle for two days trying to solve it myself and within five minutes of explaining it to another individual i'm like, oh. I got it. That's the problem. Okay. And I'm I fixed my own problem. And it's just that collaborative nature of just bringing somebody else in to give you a sanity check. You know, it was so important sometimes. So, so we had to give our, or workforce first an easy way to do that. What did you call it? How do you name it? Pulling the and on cord. So if you read Toyota's books on, on scrum and the scrum methodology, you know, it was the cord that they pull on the manufacturing floor when they need to halt the entire manufacturing process. Can you spell that? it? A N D O N Andon.
0: And on. And on. Okay, that's a word I did yeah. not know. Pulling the end. Yeah, on so
2: forward. it's core to like Scrum, right? So Scrum is the Toyota philosophy that came out um, in manufacturing, and you know, really took it to become the standard agile uh, method for a very long time in software engineering. But one of the key things that they don't talk about in a lot of scrum training and process for agile is that end on cord, you know, what do you do when when the team is stuck or when there's a risk, you know, in a project or something. And it's the idea that the whole the whole thing comes to a halt and you bring in everybody and you swarm the problem and you come up with a solution, you know? And so in the case of Twitter, that means physically stopping the manufacturing floor, right? And for them, it was a sign if it didn't stop at a certain rate, they knew that people weren't enabled or they weren't feeling empowered to say something. And so then what they noticed was quality goes down at the other side because people are just letting things go through the line that aren't to the standards that they want or uh, accidents happen, right? The accident rate goes up or something like that because people aren't empowered to say, I think this is unsafe. Let's stop for now. And so what they noticed is in plants where they had a high pull rate on the onion cord, they had a better correlated success coming out the other side. And so that's one of the things that you know we had an engineer passionate about this, and he brought this to us in our all hands, and said, "This is a missing piece of our business. Why aren't we doing this?" Um, You know, he got really infatuated and excited about this idea because he's used to doing Scrum now and stuff, but this is a piece of the process that wasn't really dealt with or talked about much. So something that we we you know we implemented it internally um, at the beginning of the year, and it's already getting getting some great traction, getting some great feedback from the field that they enjoy that process and the ability that they're feeling now empowered to just bring in anybody to help them solve. Whether allocated to that project or not.
0: Nice. Dude, this is awesome. I love it. Anything else we didn't cover?
2: You know, I would say, you know, our entire business, if you boil it down, is digital transformation, which is an overhyped, overused word in the market, which is why we don't typically talk about our business in the form of digital transformation, because this encompasses everything from people, process, and technology changes to accomplish a transformation. But if you look at, you know, um, outcomes where CEOs have run a digital transformation initiative within their businesses and had success, they see a 56% improvement in revenue output, right? Like there is, there is a true value proposition happening here. Um, but from a technology perspective, what we're seeing is there's a new class of individuals out there, right? And I think, you know, we're still young enough that we've experienced this in these transitions, but by and large, a millennial group is probably driving the majority of this change in behavior. And it's really that... 60% of Americans don't want to deal with a call support agent or a phone person. They want an app that that they can solve their own problems without picking up the phone or talking to anybody. And so you've seen a huge growth in that. Um, and then about 15% of those interactions are, are being handled or will be handled by AI by 2021, which you know, according to Garner is a 400% increase in adoption of AI. And that's something I personally, I, I had my heartbeat on it. You know, we started this business like, should we be in the AI and L business? And the answer was no three years ago. Right. It was like, this is something people are talking about, this is not something people are doing. And what we saw in 2019 is it, it really flipped over and we started getting projects that were real material projects with big, large companies that were using AI and ML algorithms, but they were struggling to operationalize them. You know, They have the scientists to do the experiments, but they couldn't figure out how to make the experiments run at scale. You know, how, how do you get running an experiment down from two weeks to, to two hours? And so we came in and helped coach them on how you build pipelines for that type of work and how you automate. Uh, moving that data around so that I can say, pick this data set for this experiment and run this algorithm at this time and ensure that when I'm running in production, I know which versions of data and which which versions of algorithm are being used on that data set to inform that product development lifecycle. So that's a huge area. I think you're going to see growth and expansion. Obviously, the IoT market as well, you know, Garner's expecting more than 75 billion devices to be deployed to the edge by 2025 that's not that far away. You know, that's, that's a lot of improvement. We have a number of accounts internally that you know, came to us with plans and they have like 50,000 devices. And one of them wants to scale that to a million within 18 months from when we started the project a year ago. So they're getting ready to, to expand heavily in that. So we help them replatform their solution to handle that volume of traffic with their IoT devices as well as you know, moving them into a cloud-based operating model. That's um, pretty cool. So that's where like my viewpoint in saying that the data center is just being disintermediated. This is being backed up now by statistics. I was able to actually go out and find, you know, when I had to put together a presentation for a partner of ours and go speak on these topics, I had a lot of theories and ideas in my head that I see from our customers, but I was able to actually pull the statistics out of market insights like IDC and Gartner um, that really back up those thesis statements.
0: And so I want, I want uh, John talk a little bit about you guys have a customer that has like floating data centers.
2: Oh yeah. Do, that so. was the first project I gave John. I was told I had to run that project as soon as I hired John on my team. I said, John, how do you feel about running this
1: project? So we do. <laughs> Too complicated. We, yeah, it's an interesting use case. <laughs> so we have, uh, have a, have a customer that we did some modern application modernization and replatforming for that. Uh, it's perfect use case for edge. So they have, um, you know, they have facilities that are, float, right? So they're out uh, out at sea. and while those they do have really good connectivity, unfortunately, you know mobile floating data centers, as you can imagine, aren't always in the coverage areas. So um, so we we helped this customer uh, build an application uh, platform. and and I want to emphasize it was truly a platform that they could deploy applications to in these facilities and data centers probably a bit strong. So when you talk about, you know, things that are floating out in the ocean, it's more of a closet with air conditioning, but um, then it is a a true, you know, I just don't want to set the expectation that there's this massive raised floor space out there just kind of bobbing around in the ocean. Um, It's, it's, you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of constraints when you're talking about uh, about maritime use and so we help this customer, you know, do some application modernization and replatform their application to run inside of Kubernetes, got them some some real big wins, but there's a lot of challenges when you're designing a, a, a solution from the bottom up, you know, from, from the ground up to be used at sea, um, specifically, even hardware considerations, you know, you've got to have ultra reliable hardware, things like mean time between failure on hard drives really starts to matter. Um, meantime, between failure on power supplies really starts to matter because if it fails, you know, while well the while well the vessels at sea, um, you're not getting that replaced until at the very soonest when it hits port somewhere, and depending on the deployment, that can take a very long time, right? So depending on where that where that application or where that hardware stack is deployed, so um, we worked with our partners to design resilient hardware, you know, reduce, um, you know, don't put any spinning disks in it reduce failure components, make sure that everything was redundant, talk about what components needed to be hot spared. And then as we started to work up, we had to take that same approach to the um, to the software stack and to the platform, right? So we had to build self-healing into this because you don't always have the most skilled engineering team aboard a ship right your space constrained your personnel constrained your power constrained everything is a constraint so building application platforms that would allow developers to deploy self-healing applications that could tolerate loss of components so if you know if we lost a node in a cluster it wasn't the end of the world. This, the application would heal, making sure that we had redundant copies, making sure we took into account uh, the way that ships are built from a zone perspective. So ships are oftentimes broken into different zones, whether they're flood zones or fire zones or HVAC zones, right? The the ship is compartmentalized and you have to have to design all that into the system. It was a really cool challenge. And I think we delivered some pretty compelling results for the customer that, um, that, that ultimately we able to, to do some, to do some good for them. So, it was a it was a cool project but yeah it's it was wild
0: that's awesome dude i'm i'm looking for so like next time you guys are all together like do a company event or conference like ping us and let us know what what you're doing maybe we'll come out and see you guys i know you're in florida right john
1: i am yeah yeah i'm in north florida
0: yeah we're like an hour south of tampa right so yeah so right there and then you're off in, you're in oregon
2: Yeah, I'm just outside of Portland, about an hour out in wine country on the way to the the Lincoln City uh, on the coast, which is about, you know, if you look at a map, it's probably uh, a little north of midpoint uh, in Oregon on the coast. So a little highway that runs out there called 99. So we're just on a little city on the way out to the coast.
0: Yeah, I've been been, hiking uh, out there. Oh, have you? Oh, awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, It's Dundee. So the town is Dundee. It's the epicenter for Pinot Noir production. If you trace it back
0: to wine in Oregon. Yeah, there's a bunch of little... Uh, there's like some small ridges out there and then there's some places to hike. Uh, yep. I spent some time out uh, doing some work about 10, 10, 12 years ago when I was going out to Portland, uh, I don't know, a couple times, a couple times a year for a couple weeks. And uh, it was pretty cool. It was interesting. There's lines, there's lines, everywhere. <laughs> but yeah. um, it's, it, I thought I had seen it on a show and I was like, I didn't even think twice about it. And then when I got there in person, I was like, Oh wow, this is like a thing. I live in a, in a retirement town, so.
2: Oh, gotcha. Yeah, no, yeah. there's great, lots of outdoor activities here, you know, an hour to the mountain, an hour to the ocean. So it's really fun. And then four hours to high desert, you know, uh, somewhere to like a Northern Arizona or something um, in Bend, Oregon, which is where actually a lot of, um, a lot of Silicon Valley people have taken up primary residence there and are now commuting back and forth. You know, there's some direct United flights an hour to San Francisco. So uh, we're getting an influx of technology in that area, which is really nice.
0: Yeah, one of the one of the first Ruby, um, or I think no, not Ruby. One of the first PHP frameworks I had used was, dang, I can't a CodeIgniter. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember that thing, but uh, they were I think they were built out in Ben Bend, Bend, uh, Bend yep, Oregon. Ben yeah. Oregon.
2: Yep, that's what I'm talking about. Yep, yeah. yeah. and You got seven, seven Peak Ventures now, and they've got their own tech center, and I think Docu DocuSign uh, or one of those guys, the signing companies, had had a, a space there for a while.
0: Dude, this is great. We did it. We made a podcast. How do you guys feel? This is great. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. There's no virus going to hold us back. We're doing it. <laughs> and then that's we've right. got we've got the show notes. Get your free consultation. Get your free credits, right? Put, put people in the show notes. And then um, we find you guys on. We'll put your LinkedIn uh, okay. profiles on there. And then we'll find a careers page. I'm sure you guys have on your website somewhere. And we'll put that yep. in there. Get lots of links awesome. for everybody. To connect and then uh, it's going to be great be great awesome Thank awesome, awesome. Yeah, thanks, thanks for hanging Joe. out
2: joel it was nice meeting you and if you're in portland look me up
0: you know absolutely Go, talk soon guys right. take thanks. care joel thanks bye